It is a great joy to be with you this morning at St. George's. I so appreciate my friendship with RD. A number of weeks ago, uh, my wife and I and two of our children were here, as was said earlier, worshiping with you, and we so appreciated the opportunity to gather with, with you and to worship the Lord, our God. Many Christians think of Christianity as Jesus being something you add to your life. It's something you add to your life like you add other things to your life. Like you're a member of Costco, for instance. Jesus is something that you just kind of pull the card out every so often when you need it. In the Costco case, when you need Jesus' discount. But that is not who Jesus is. Jesus, for those of us that know him, wants our lives to become like his. Jesus is our life. It's not just that Jesus is a part of our life, it's that every portion of our life is to be examined by who Christ is and his work within us. And in this passage, we see that at times, as Christians in North America, we are able to put up with some inconveniences as Christians. Oh, you know, somebody at work doesn't like that we're a Christian. Somebody else asks us some questions that we don't appreciate. And yet the apostles are willing to go through persecution just like Jesus. They were actually willing to give up their lives for the sake and cause of the gospel. So in this passage, verses 12 to 17 or 16 of the chapter, you first find that the apostles are performing many signs and wonders done among the people. They're back in Solomon's uh, portico or colonnade, and they're there teaching the gospel. Now, Solomon's portico is the eastern part of the temple. It's where you found Peter in Acts 2. So in Acts chapter 2, as the gospel's being declared on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 are baptized, that's where you find them. And now they're back there again. And they're teaching the word of God, and God is granting them signs and wonders to perform. People are being healed. Demons are being cast out. You learned last week, Ananias and Sapphira had simply just been disciplined by the Lord for their disobedience. And God wants the church to know he hasn't left them. I imagine in that moment, many in the church would have felt like, God, are you still here? God, are you still with us? God, have we sinned so much that you are no longer going to walk with us? Have we entered into a point of no return? And God is showing the people by the signs and wonders. He's authenticating, I'm with you. I'm walking with you. I'm here with you. Note these signs and wonders in verse 12 were done by the hands of the apostles. And then there's this juxtaposition in verses 13 and 14. You may have caught it as the text was being read. None of the rest dared to join them. And yet more believers were attitude by multitudes. What? How is that possible? How is it possible that no one dared to join them, and yet the people held them in high esteem, and yet believers were added to the Lord more than ever, multitudes of men and women? Well, I think it's something like this. People were no longer wanting to just be part of the church as casual Christians. Only those that were truly converted were coming in. They'd heard what had happened in Ananias and Sapphira, and they were like, man, if I'm in, I'm really in. I'm not just coming because the church is selling uh, that which it has. Some had possessions. You learned this in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. 
Those that had more took the more they had. They sold that and they were caring for people so that the apostles could say there was no one in need. You could only imagine lots of people would say, well, I'm in need. I may not yet believe in Jesus, but I'll come be part of this because my needs will be met. So what's happening here is Luke is now describing for us, no one was willing just to join the club. But people were being saved. God's spirit was working in people's lives and truly converting them. They were turning to Jesus Christ for salva to salvation, for salvation. And because of that, the Lord was adding to his number, though the crowd itself was dwindling. And what happened? Well, as multitudes of men and women were coming, believers, they were actually even just lying people, friends and family, on the streets so that Peter's shadow would even fall on them and they would be healed. God granted to the apostles some extraordinary acts of miracles. Sick were healed. Those that were demonized, unclean spirits, were freed. You see, as God's kingdom breaks in, the work of the enemy is being undone. As God's kingdom breaks in, the work of the enemy is being undone. We know that the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. It's death spiritually. It's death physically. It's death emotionally. It's death relationally. It's death psychologically. It's death in all of those ways. The wages of sin is death. And so because of sin, there's disease. Because of sin, the enemy, Satan, has broken in. Because of sin, there's demonization. And Jesus is showing that through now the apostles and then through his people, as his kingdom is being restored on earth, that in its restoration, the created order will be restored to what God had intended. There'll be no disease. There'll be no death. Satan will have no rule and no reign. Is that not great news? And one day, one glorious day, when Christ returns and we're ushered into glory, we'll be in a place where there'll be no battle, where there'll be no fight. You'll be in a place where you'll never be tempted to sin again. I can't even imagine that, to not be tempted to sin. But we'll be in a place where sin will be so vanquished that we won't be tempted to sin anymore. Where you'll never hear of someone having cancer or a heart attack. Disease will be gone where the enemy will have been thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, that's Satan, and he'll be cast out for all of eternity. And he won't have any reign there. And as the kingdom is breaking in, you see that happening right here in Acts. But, verse 17, the high priest raises up all those who are with him, that's the party of the Sadducees, and they're filled with jealousies, with jealousy. They're like, huh, their following's bigger than ours. People like them more than us. What do we do now? How do we handle this? Well, they decided they would handle it by having the apostles arrested. Now, the Sadducees claim their roots to the high priest Zodak, who was under King Solomon. They didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in resurrection. The Sadducees did not. The Sadducees were political. The Sadducees were wealthy. The Sadducees were not legalists like the Pharisees, very different. And the Sadducees held the majority of seats in the Sanhedrin. You may remember, right, 
Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night, though he's a Pharisee, right, was part of the ruling council of Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin, which is made up of the elders of Israel, is made up predominantly of Sadducees, though also some Pharisees. We'll read that in a few moments. One of the Pharisees is there. And other elders who made up the clans. So they're there. They're jealous because way too many people are following the apostles. They have them arrested and put in a public prison. Peter and John had already previously been arrested. Now, the majority of the apostles, we don't know if it's all of them. It just says the apostles. But it would seem like a majority of the apostles are now arrested. In the middle of the night, an angel comes, opens the prison doors, and said to them, Go, stand in the temple courts, and declare the words of life. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was there and an angel appeared while I was in prison and said, Go back and do the very thing you just got put into prison for. I'd be like, whoa, whoa, wait, just wait a minute. Am I, am I hearing you right? Like, I'm in jail for this. You're asking me to go out and do this again. And the angel's like, uh-huh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm asking. Are you really from God? Like, are you really an angel? Right? I mean, I would be questioning the whole thing. The apostles in the text here, there's no questioning of the authority. God, through an angel, have to has told them to go back to the very court where they were arrested and declare the word of life again. Why? Because the angel knows only God has the words of life. Only he has the words of life. Words of life are not found anywhere else. They're not found in self-improvement books. They're not found in any other religion. When people talk about all religions being the same, religions are not the same. I've read through the Quran. I've read through Dianetics. I've read multiple writings from Hindus and Buddhists. They are not the same. The tenets of our faith are radically different, and the words of life are only found in Jesus Christ, in him alone. Only in him. Only in him. It's not found anywhere else. And so the angel says, go back to the temple and declare the words of life. Let everyone know of their need for Jesus Christ. And they do. They go back. But the leaders don't know that. They don't know they're released yet. The apostles, I mean, imagine this. This is Luke writing humor into the gospel, or in the, the book of Acts. Luke is now telling everyone that, hey, while we're back, while the apostles are back, he's not an apostle, while the apostles are back, declaring the words of life again, the captain, the guard, and the others go to release them. They get to the jail. The guards are like, oh, yeah, they're back there. They get back there, and the apostles aren't there. And everybody's like, what happened? And they have no explanation. Can you imagine the conspiracy theories going around in that day? So who let them out? What happened? Who, who, I mean, how did this? An angel. Come on, guys. Got to be a better explanation than that. They don't find any of them in there. They simply don't. And the captain and the officers are so afraid to take the apostles by force that they don't do so because they're afraid that people will stone them. So verse 27. When they've been brought, when uh, they brought them, not by force, probably by request, and set them before the council, the high priest questioned them, said, we told you. We told you not to teach in this name. Yet you filled Jerusalem with this teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Note what Peter says. 
They answered, Firstly, we must obey God rather than men. Our first priority, Peter says, is to obey the Lord. Our first priority is what God has said. And I want you to note this parallelism in Peter's speaking. God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed. God exalted him as leader and savior or as prince and savior, and you can repent. Note what he says. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This God, or God the Father, raised Jesus to life again, but you killed him. God granted him, exalted him, to the place as leader or prince and savior. And even you can repent. That's what he says. He says, repentance to Israel is given for the forgiveness of sins. These are the leaders of Israel. These are the elders of Israel. This is the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel. Could they turn to Jesus for repentance? Yes, they could. Yes, they could. I mean, it's like the day of Pentecost. When the people here, when Peter charges them and says, you killed Jesus, what do they say? What should we do? What should we do? And what does Peter say? Nothing you can do. No. What does Peter say? You're too far gone. No. What does Peter say? Repent. Because who can be saved? Anyone. Is that not great news? Anyone can be saved. God, in his sovereignty, can save anyone. He can reach into any heart. He can touch any life. He can save anyone. In my last couple of years at James North, we saw five young men and women out of Buddhist homes come to faith in Christ. God can save anyone because he's God, gloriously God. Now, I want you to note a couple of things here. Note then in verse 31, or verse 32, sorry, Peter says, we are witnesses. We are declaring what we've seen. We heard him teach. We watched him perform miracles. We saw his sinless life. He died according to Scripture. And we are witnesses declaring this. We saw him raised to life again after. He appeared to the apostles, then to more than 500. We are witnesses. We are declaring what God has done. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to all who obey him. He says, not only are we witnesses, but God's Spirit who is in us is witness to who Jesus is. This morning, if you're a believer, God's Spirit is in you. It is one of the greatest news of the gospel. His spirit is in you. He is your counselor. He is your guide. We declared it this morning when we were declaring the creed. He is in you. And he is a witness to whom Jesus is in you. That's the spirit of our God. About 12 years ago, our church began, when I was at James North, to work with the Karen. They're the Burmese people from, from Burma. The Karen are one of the provinces there. They had been genocide, exterminated by their own government. A million of them were fleeing within Burma. 
A group, about 250,000 in the end, made it to Thailand into the refugee camps. They spent the first decades of their life living in jungles in, in Burma and then in refugee camps in Thailand. They had never experienced running water, sanitation, or electricity till they came to Canada. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine spending the majority of your life with no running water, no sanitation, no electricity? Just think for a moment, how would that change your life? It's pretty much everything we understand, isn't it? Electricity, running water, sanitation. Because the government was killing them and the Thai government wouldn't let them leave the refugee camps, if they left, they were shot. They were dropped off. NGOs, non-government organizations would drop off a bag of rice for them once a month for their families, right? 250,000 of them in these refugee camps, refugee camps as large as 400,000. So that's larger than the city of Burlington. Can you imagine 400,000 people living in a refugee camp? Could you imagine Burlington crammed together living in a refugee camp. But missionaries went to the refugee camps, told people about the hope and glory we have in Christ, and many were saved. Unfortunately, they weren't well discipled. And so they came to Canada, and the parents were following Jesus. We began a gathering at our church. I thought these people were well taught because when I went to the services, you heard in their language, holy, 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 sweet hour of prayer. There was a 30 to 35 minute message and then their pastoral prayer was 30 minutes long. So when I would be there, sometimes it would be the third time I would be part of a service in that day, and it would be two in the afternoon, which is nap time, and I'd be there, I'd have preached through translation, and now I'm at, the, well, I used to be at the front in a chair, and I'm there at the front in a chair listening to a 30-minute prayer in another language. I went, Lord, I can't fall asleep. It's disrespectful. It's irrelevant. Reverend, I can't fall asleep, I can't fall asleep. So I'd keep my eyes open, I'd occasionally pinch myself, because, I mean, you would be trying to pray while they're praying, but your body's saying, it's nap time, man. So their young people all walked away from the Lord, all their teenagers, because they'd go to their moms and dads who had no education, no training, and say, why do you believe that God exists? They say, because we do. They say, well, our teachers at school say he doesn't exist. Why do you believe the Bible is God's word? They'd say, because we do. And they literally all walked away. One of their young men ended his life at 21 years of age. He was playing hide-and-seek with his friends, and he hung himself while they were looking for him. And that's how they found him. And one of his close friends, Wally, just spiraled into a mess out of that, of sin and depravity, and, and um, showed up at the church one Sunday when I was preaching. He was going to say goodbye to everyone and end his life after the service. But God spoke to him during the service. You know, God has ordained appointments, right? God spoke to him during the service. And at the end of it, he came up to me. He was just a mess. He was just crying. And I'm not a big affectionate guy. I'm not a hugger. But he kind of collapsed in my arms, and I hugged him. And, um, and I said, what's wrong? And he said, everything. And he said, but Jesus spoke to me today. I said, do you have time tomorrow night, and we could meet? He said, I do. So we met the next night. He came into my office. We sat and met, and I asked him how he was, and he just began to describe his life and the spiraling into sin and I said, do you want Jesus? Like, do you want him to save you? He said, I do. I feel like God's spirit is working in me right now. I asked him just to take a few minutes and repent of his sin. He just began to repent and renounce his sin. And I asked him to take a few minutes and just ask Jesus to save him, and he did. He left that night glowing. He recounted this at his baptism. He said, I got into my car. He said, I'd never felt this way. 
I didn't know what it was at first, and then I realized who it was. It was the Spirit of God. He was in me. I realized in that moment as I got into my car that God's Spirit was in me. And he said, I turned on worship music as I drove off, and as I drove off, he said, all, the, all of a sudden I realized for the first time in my life I could worship the Lord. I could celebrate him because God had just saved me and his spirit was now in me. And as I drove home, I didn't want this moment to end, he says. I was singing and celebrating and crying and rejoicing because I knew that God had saved me and I knew that his spirit was in me. What does Peter say? We are witnesses. We are witnesses to these things, to who Jesus is. And so is the Holy Spirit who is in everyone who obeys. God's Spirit is in you to worship the Lord, to celebrate him, to declare the truth about Jesus even in the midst of adversity. And you know we live in a diverse day, don't you? I was biking back from the gym yesterday. I know it doesn't look like I go, but I do. It's fine. I mean, R.D. goes to the gym. I go to the gym. He looks like he goes, right? I, I know that. It's fine. Um, I was biking back from the gym. I, was in, I, I go to the gym in Weston. I was biking back yesterday. I was coming to where we live in downtown Hamilton, and there was a big sign that said, I am, and I think, is this a Christian thing? Enough. And a person on it. So I looked it up. It's about a woman who was a single mom who raised a couple of kids, one with autism. I'm sure it's a glorious story. It's a musical but it's heretical. The only I am is our God. I am not enough, but that is what our world is declaring out there all the time now. I am enough because our world believes that the universe is self-created. Our world believes that somehow matter was able to move from inorganic state to organic state. Our world believes we can exist without God. That means we're the pinnacle of all things. We're the top, but we're not. You see, the world wants that because we're not accountable to God. In fact, Jim Holt, famed philosopher, if you go online and listen to his TED Talk, he first makes fun of people for believing that God exists. Then he makes fun of scientists for believing the universe can self-create. And then he gives his theory of the universe. Listen to this. This is stunning. The revolution, the resolution, sorry, to the mystery of existence is that the reality uh, we exist in is one of the possible generic realities because reality had to turn out some way. What? What? It could either turn out to be nothing or everything or something in between. So if it had a special feature like being really eloquent or being really full, that would require an explanation. But if it's just one of these random generic realities, there's no need to explain it. That's what science is telling us. Millions and millions of people have listened to this TED Talk. Here's what he's saying. This is, this is insanity, sorry. He's, I hope you're not listening, Jim, but if you are, I'm happy to talk to you later. This is what he's saying. He's saying, we know we're not the only universe out there. There's a multiverse theory, and that multiple universes exist. Ours happens to have one that has life in it, and it just happens to have life, and because it's not really special and it's not really empty, we don't need any explanation. We just need to know that we're the one that ended up with life, and there might be other ones out there with life, but we live in this multiverse, and I'm like, you got your theory from Spider-Man. Like, come on. You know, you know what's in comic books 60 years ago that they developed the multiverse theory and now it's become mainstream. If you talk to young men in their 20s and young women in their 20s, they're like, oh yeah, I believe in the multiverse. I'm like, 
really? And do you believe in Spider-Man too? They're like, what? Like, do you believe there's Thor? Oh, maybe. I'm like, okay, we are on another planet right now. I am enough. After God declares to Moses that he's to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, I am has sent you. Who picks up the I am's? Jesus Christ. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am. See, a human being can never say I am. We can never be self-sufficient. We need dependence on the Lord. And we shouldn't be surprised if one day we face persecution for that. We shouldn't be surprised if one day we face persecution for our views on the exclusivity of Christ, that we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that we believe that in order to be in glory, you need to know Jesus. You need to have trusted in him. What, what does Peter say? He says it right when he's talking, that this Jesus whom you killed, God has raised to be leader and savior, and he will give repentance and forgiveness of sins to anyone who believes. But there needs to be repentance to be forgiveness of sin, an acknowledgement that I am not enough, an acknowledgement that my way of believing was leading to damnation, an acknowledgement that I needed someone else. That's what Peter's saying right there. There needs to be an acknowledgement of repentance and a belief in who God is. It's a turning from what you thought was real and a turning to what is real. It's a turning from what you thought was reality to the reality that God has created. We chose to sin, spiraling the world into depravity. But God's love was so great that he would send his son. His son would incarnate himself, God the Son, cloak his deity with humanity, live among us, never sin, and on the cross become our sin so that he could grant us his righteousness. That is the good news of the gospel. Anyone, anywhere, anytime can be forgiven, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. Not because we are good, but because he is good. And his goodness is enough for any one of us. I won't be surprised if we are also persecuted for our views of gender and marriage. You've experienced that here. I know that. I interviewed R.D. and George Sinclair in an interview on the Gospel Coalition about Anik and about the journey you were through 15 years ago. In fact, when R.D. asked me to come and preach, he first said, would you just want to preach the first four verses? And I said, you want me to do a whole sermon on miracles? He said, no, I don't. And I said, I said, why? He said, well, this, this passage is so, is so important to our church, to St. George's. I said, why? He explained it to me. And I said, R.D., you should write that out for your church, and I'll read it to them that Sunday. So this is from your pastor in Portugal. Don't feel sorry for him. <laughs> they sent me a picture. They're doing well. You'll be preaching a passage nearer to our heart and important in the history of our church family. 15 years ago, our congregation was evicted from our historic building for our commitment to the lordship and name of Jesus. I remember reading this passage to our church gathered on the first Sunday in a temporary rented facility and verses 41 and 42 spoke deeply to us. Acts 5, 41 and 42. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name 
and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The loss of a church building is mild persecution compared to the flogging received by the apostles. But I fondly recall the delight and excitement we shared that day, rejoicing that we were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. May this ever be the mark of St. George's. May we never cease to teach and preach that Christ is Jesus, rejoicing every time we are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. Amen? You've lived through that as a congregation. That's part of your history and story. Well, the Sanhedrin so enraged that they want to kill the apostles. Verse 33. Verse 34. One of the Pharisees, Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was Saul's teacher, stands up and says, men of Israel, hey, we know this. We've just recently seen two rebellions, Thaddeus and Judas. When they both died, their men were scattered and dispersed. Right? One was in the days of the census. The rebellions would always emerge during the census because it was a reminder to the Jewish people that they were under Roman rule. And so lots of people would say, let's get the Romans. Let's stop the Romans. Let's usurp Roman authority. It was very common in days of census to have this. And so he says, you know what? If this is, I'll read it, verse 38. So in this present case, I tell you, keep uh, away from men. Leave them alone. If this plan is an undertaking of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you won't be able to overthrow them. You might even be opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them, they flogged them, and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Some people struggle with this passage because there's no historical record of these two men, Thaddeus and Judas. In fact, in the works of Josephus, these two men are named but they're not the same two men. But we already know Judas was a fairly common name, so was Thaddeus. And so Josephus names in his big antiquity that there were thousands, if not tens of thousands, he says, of these rebellions. Well, the one had 400 people. That was not a large rebellion in those days. Lots of rebellions were much larger than that. So Luke's, in my view, is just naming two other people. This isn't an issue of, you know, biblical inerrancy. The Bible is fully inerrant, fully infallible. This is just an issue of two different men, Luke mentions, that aren't mentioned anywhere in history because 400 men in an uprising wasn't worth mentioning in most places. But this Pharisee, teacher of the law, who's honored by everyone, names it. He has human wisdom here. This isn't God-given wisdom. This is just human wisdom. People say, we agree. So we'll beat them and let them go. But don't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. We've just gone through a pandemic, and many of you know in going through the pandemic, there were lots of opinions, right? You know that. I'm not surprising you, I hope. And lots of opinions. And I would say we confused three things as a church in the pandemic. What is a civil liberty? What is a religious liberty, like tax exemption, right, receipts? And what are gospel obligations? One day I won't be surprised if we lose our receding and I don't get a receipt for giving, and I simply don't care. I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to battle it. If it's gone, it's gone. It won't change what we give as a family. Why would it? We don't give for a receipt. We give for gospel obligation. I don't need a receipt to give. I just give because my God's called me to. 
one day if we have to pay property tax, oh, I won't be happy about it, but it's fine. Those are just religious liberties we have in our culture in Canada. But there are gospel obligations declaring the name of Jesus. And if our government ever told us that we couldn't declare who he is anymore, well, I pray that the Lord would give me strength to be willing to die for that cause. That my life would be forfeit if needed for the cause of the gospel. Quickly, and I'll finish. They leave, verse 41, the presence of the council. They rejoice that they are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And every day in the temple courts and from, in the temple, sorry, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Tertullian said this, addressing the Roman Empire, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed of the church is the blood of Christians. Bishop Festo um, uh, Kivendry, speaking at the martyrdom of Archbishop Janani Lumina in, of Uganda, of Uganda, sorry, said this, without bleeding, the church fails to bless. So the apostles rejoiced. They were counted worthy to suffer. It's reminiscent of the apostle Paul in Philippians 3. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So they go back to the temple. The angel told them to, they did. They're brought back for trial, they're flogged, and they're back in the temple again, declaring that the Christ is Jesus. Declaring, I mean, Jesus fulfilled the law in two ways. Every Old Testament messianic promise is found true in him, and he never broke the law. He became, he was the righteousness of God, so that when he dies on the cross, he can grant us his righteousness as he took our sin upon himself. Here's the good news. Regardless of the persecution the world brings, you can't stop God. You can't stop him. Canada can say, well, you can't have your building. And look what God has given St. George's. Is he not a good God? Why? Because I couldn't stop you from declaring the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he indeed is the Christ. I think of Nigeria 2015 where it was illegal to preach the gospel and on one day it was reported that 800 Muslims who had converted to Christ were baptized. They rushed to the river with myriads of pastors. They baptized 800 people celebrating and declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord and they left letting the government know you can't stop God. I think of Korea where introduced in 1603 Christianity came banned in 1758 and outlawed and made illegal. And yet in 1884, a group of Presbyterian missionaries end up in South Korea. And within 100 years, South Korea, God has converted 30% of them to Christianity. They could ban Christianity, they could outlaw Christianity, but they couldn't stop God. You can't ban God from South Korea. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the sovereign I am. The universe is his and all that is in it. I think of the Republic of China when in 1912 they decided to ban Christianity and make it illegal. They set out to eliminate it in every way possible. By 1949, there were one million believers in China. Today, the count would be over 80 million because you can't write a law that eliminates God. I mean, imagine what he was up in the heavens doing. Gabriel's like, God, did you see that? He said, well, God's like, I know everything. Of course I saw it, Gabriel. 
right? I'm, that is not how the conversation went, by the way. I'm sure Gabriel knows that God knows everything. Don't, don't later on say, Dwayne, I, I get it. I was just, you know, for the point. And, 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 and they're up there in heaven like, look, China's trying to say you can't go. God's like, I'm everywhere. I am. I am. I am. He is greater than China. He is greater than South Korea. He is greater than any ruler or leader. He is greater than any opposition we will ever face. He is the great I am. He is the father who loves us so much that he would send his son. He is the son who came to be our righteousness. And he is prince and Lord and leader and savior. He is the Holy Spirit who indwells us and is witness of who Jesus is within our very soul. He is the unstoppable God, the one who is your Savior, who will never let you go, even if persecution comes, because he's right there in you. Would you pray with me? We are thankful for your goodness to us, O oh God, and the grace that we have in Jesus. And we're thankful for this passage and how meaningful it is to St. George's Church. I pray today, God, that by this passage you will have encouraged them and you will have walked with them. And I pray powerfully that you will remind them that any persecution they have gone through, God, you are greater than. Thank you for blessing them with a new facility. Thank you for people that you have saved since that time. Thank you for those during that time who stood firm for the gospel and still do. Our prayer, God, is regardless of how this world comes at us, that we would declare that we would rather obey God than men because the God we obey is the God of the universe who sent his son, our Savior Jesus, and left his spirit to be our witness so that we could declare this gospel and the saving grace of our Savior to this entire world. Be with us, God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.